Well, church, if you're going to take your Bibles with me and open them up of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 6, as we continue on our study. God is and who he is revealing himself to be. Can you guys hear me? Am I on? We good? Use this mic. All right. All right. We heard earlier this morning from that text in Exodus 16 about God providing bread and, and this discussion about hunger. And we want to begin this morning by thinking about a, a brief theology of hunger. No one has to teach a newborn, how to be hungry. We're born hungry, and they will let you know they're hungry by their scream for milk. And that doesn't change as we grow up. We eat, and we get full, but it's not very long until our stomachs begin to growl. Your stomach might be growling right now, wondering when the next meal is coming around. And we have two growing boys, and our quickly emptying fridge bears evidence, bears witness to this hunger. But physical hunger is only one of many types of hungers that human beings experience. There's emotional or financial or professional or relational hunger. There's other hungers we could talk about. And so in light of these hungers that we experience from day to day, we often daydream. I would be content if you fill in the blank. I'll be happy when you fill in the blank. We all have these, these ideas of what will, what will satisfy that hunger, what will quench that thirst that we're feeling in our heart and our soul. Last year as a church, we looked at the book of Ecclesiastes, and the preacher in Ecclesiastes chased that idea. He tried everything under the sun, everything on earth, in search of finding meaning and, and finding contentment. He tried laughter and wine and career and new homes and the dream vacation and acquiring wealth and enjoying entertainment and sex. He tried everything this world had to offer. And then he shares his conclusion with us while retaining his wisdom. He says in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 11, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Friends, our hunger taunts us. It teases us. It, 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 it bothers us because in the end, nothing under the sun ultimately satisfies. It only leaves us searching for more and more and more. I wonder if you've had that experience, if you can recognize that experience in your life. Friends, God has set eternity in our hearts such that life and contentment is found only in him, not in the fleeting pleasures of his gifts, however good those gifts God gives might be. 
The theologian C.S. Lewis wrote about this when he said, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards that God promises us in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, he says, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So why is that? Why do we settle? When God offers infinite joy, why do we settle for less? Why do we settle for mud pies in the slums? Why do people make choices that end up leaving their life in shambles when God offers them life? The answer is quite simple. Because we're not willing to trust God. We want control instead of having to trust. But trying to run our life as if we're in charge and trying to figure out our life for ourselves, that is the very thing that leaves human beings anxious and fearful and angry and tired and weary. Perhaps that's you today. If so, let me ask you a question. What is it that's going on in your life that's just too big for you to trust Jesus with? this morning too big that it seems that God can't handle that friends John's gospel his reason for writing it is very clear he he gives us his purpose statement John's gospel is written so that we might believe that we might trust Jesus to know Jesus and to trust Jesus and so chapter 6 is part of his contribution to help us to know Jesus and to trust Jesus And chapter 6 helps us to trust him by showing that Jesus came to give more than a meal. He came to give life. So that's the big idea. We're going to look at the big idea up front. The big idea of the text this morning is this. Trust Jesus as the one who gives life. Not just a meal. Trust Jesus as the one who gives life. Not just a meal. And we're going we're gonna to see that kind of come out of the text in verses 1 through 21 this morning. The, the structure, if you've been with us studying John's gospel, the structure of John's gospel kind of follows a pattern. You kind of see this in chapter, uh, in each of the chapters of John's gospel. He presents, the writer of John, he, the apostle John, he, he presents a miracle of Jesus. Wow! And, but that miracle is not an end in itself. These miracles are called signs. They're meant to show us something about Jesus. And so he, he presents the miracle, and then the rest of that chapter is then used to explain or to offer commentary on that miracle. And that's exactly what we see in chapter 6. So really, chapter 6, verses 1 through 71, the whole chapter belongs together. But fear not, we're going to break up into two parts, right? This morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 21 at the miracle. And in two weeks, we're going to come back to chapter 6, and we're going to listen to Jesus' explanation of this miracle. So let's look at the miracle, uh, the miracles, starting in verse 1. This is God's word in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. 
And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Well, there's a little boy here with five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. We'll pause there after this this first miracle that we see in John 6. Chapter 6 begins with Jesus and his disciples uh, traveling on the Sea of Galilee, and they're, they're traveling to go on a brief vacation. They're, they're, tr- they're going to get away after a very busy season of public ministry. And so Jesus says, let's go away and let's, let's get some rest. The problem is, is when, they, when their boat hits the shore, they find out that news had spread about their departure. And when the people heard that they were going to this place, a large crowd ran ahead to meet them there. And so when the boat hits the shore... There's a large crowd that has gathered. Now Mark's gospel, and, and all four of the gospels record this miracle. Mark's gospel notes that Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. I'm not sure that's my reaction would have been, but that's Jesus' reaction. And so, and so instead of shooing these people away, he sat down and he teaches them. He teaches them about the kingdom of God. And he teaches them all day long truth. Now verse 10 tells us that there are, there's 5,000 men, and so that's not to mention the women and the children that are there, and so if you add in the, num- the number of women and children that are there, it's likely that the 5,000 actually becomes maybe 10 to 20,000 people that are gathered there, and we know that this is the season of the Passover, so it kind of makes sense that there's these large crowds that are gathering there, but they're there to listen to Jesus. At the end of a long day teaching, Jesus pulls the disciples aside and he wants to discuss a problem that he sees brewing. You see, in their rush to get to Jesus and the disciples, this crowd hadn't had time to bring uh, a food. And so after a long day of listening to Jesus teach, that's a lot of hungry people who are tired after listening to him teach and sitting under the sun. And so Jesus picks out one of his disciples, Philip, 
And he poses a question to Philip in verse 5. He says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, I think it's, it's helpful to understand that this is not a life and death situation for these crowd. It, it, Jesus could have sent the crowds home and they would have eventually found food. They would have been okay. They wouldn't have starved to death. And so the question is, why would he, why would he feel a need to feed these, these people? We know, from again, from Mark's gospel, he has compassion on them. But why does he ask Philip this question? Well, we don't have to guess. Verse 6 tells us, he said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. So Jesus, he's got his plan all figured out in his mind. He knows what he would do. And he was in control of the situation the whole time. Jesus knows what he's capable of. He knows what he's about to do. But he sees this moment as an important, teachable moment for the disciples. The disciples had seen Jesus do a number of miracles. They'd seen Jesus take water and turn it into wine in chapter 2. They'd seen Jesus take, uh, heal the Capernaum's official, or the, the Capernaum official's son. They'd seen Jesus make a paralytic walk, a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years to walk in chapter 5. And that's not to mention the other miracles that, that John doesn't include in his gospel. So they'd seen Jesus do miracles. But when he's testing Philip, he's not tempting Philip. He poses the question to Philip and the rest of the disciples to put them in a position that their view of who Jesus is will grow. Philip knows a little bit about Jesus, but his understanding of Jesus is deficient. He needs to grow in his understanding of who Jesus is, that his trust in Jesus might also grow. So how does Philip respond? Verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So this is about eight months of salary, and he's saying, if, even if we had that much money, that, that wouldn't even be enough to get a bite for these people. When you look at Philip's response, and you kind of follow, if you track Philip through the gospel of John, you'll see that Philip, can, he's regularly displayed as somebody who's very practical, Right? He's a practical guy. He, he, he hears Jesus' question, he puts on his practical hat, and he gets out his calculator and he does the math. And he lets his calculator decide for him, huh, well, the answer's easy, Jesus. This is impossible. Now, there's nothing wrong with being practical. There's nothing wrong with using a calculator, right? As a former mechanical engineer, I understand Philip's instinct to get the, the calculator out. But the Christian life doesn't always have a formula. The Christian life doesn't always have an equation for everything. It's not how it, it works. It's a relationship that we have with God. And, and Philip is experiencing that. It's not, a, it's not a formula. He's in a relationship. And Jesus is right there asking him this question. It's an opportunity for him to say, I don't know where this is going to come from, but <laughs> you're Jesus. He doesn't say that. He just looks at it from a practical calculation sense and says, like, we can't do it. Kent Hughes notes this. He says, it's a good thing, though, that David didn't use a calculator. Ten feet tall at X number of pounds per inch. Lord, Goliath must weigh 500 pounds. If he falls on me, he'll kill me. Lord, I've done the calculations and you've called the wrong man. 
Praise God that David didn't have a calculator, but he had faith. He trusted God. Friends, when we are following Jesus, when we're listening to what he's telling us in his word, sometimes we need to toss the calculator out and just hold fast to what God is telling us in the Bible. Well, after Philip answers, Andrew steps in. Verse 8, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So his, his, his answer is a little bit better, but it's, it's not very far from, from Philip's answer. Philip was focusing on, his focus was on the size of the crowd. There's thousands of people here, Jesus. But Andrew, his focus is on the amount of food they have on hand. His question, but what are they for so many, is a bit of a mild rebuke aimed at Jesus. It's as if he's saying, Jesus, come on, look up. Look at the crowd. There's, there's thousands of people here. All we got is five barley loaves and two fish. Come on. Where are we going to get enough food for this? It's a little bit impractical, Jesus. Maybe we should just send these people away. Can't you see the numbers? But the problem isn't the numbers. Friends, friends today some people argue that theology isn't what in, is theology is not what's important what's important is how you live and i understand that especially in the face of, of evident hypocrisy in some people's lives i understand that objection but the fact is how we live flows out of what we worship what you do how you make decisions today and tomorrow flows out of your worship what you love, what you trust, what you value, out of that comes your obedience, comes your actions, comes your decisions. So the reason for inconsistency, discrepancies between a person's profession as a Christian and their conduct is not due to the unimportance of theology, quite the contrary. That inconsistency is there because of a deficient theology. A view of God that's too small. The disciples thought the problem was one of numbers. Too many people, too little supply, we can't do it. But actually, their problem was a deficient view of Jesus. And so his miracle was a sign that was designed to help them and us, the readers today, to see something of who Jesus is. Its design is meant to open our eyes to see that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God, and we are to trust him. Now, kids, listen up. Before we go on in the, into the next verse, look again at verse 9. There's an important detail here in verse 9. Verse 9 says, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. I want you to notice, kids, who Jesus uses to perform this miracle. He doesn't hire a professional caterer. Kids, he uses a little boy. He might have used a little girl. He, 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 he's, the point is, he's using a little child. And he doesn't use expensive caviar and the T-bone steak. He, he takes this young boy's sack lunch that has five barley loaves, five little cakes of bread, and two little fish. 
This, was, this would have been considered a poor man's meal. And Jesus uses this young child and his sack lunch to perform this amazing miracle. So kids, don't assume that because you're young, God can't use you. If you think that, that's a lie. God can use you. God is so powerful, he doesn't need you to be rich. He doesn't need you to be grown up to use you. All you have to do, kids, is trust God. And that's a decision that you need to make. You need to trust God with your life. Bring the very little that you have to God, and he can use it. So kids, do that. Trust in Jesus. Believe what he says in his word about himself. Bring the little that you have to him, and he can use you. That's what this text shows us. Well, anyways, Jesus shows us the problem in verses 1 through 9, but then he, 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 we begin to see the solution unfold. Jesus has everyone sit down uh, in, in, the, in the grass, and you've got to imagine that this, 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 uh, this requires a little bit of administrative genius, right? Because there's, there's thousands of people there. This is going to take some time to have everybody seated in their little groups. And so he has them seated, and then he takes the five barley loaves, these small little cakes and these two fish, and he prays. He gives thanks. So as Jesus holds this insufficient meal, in the backdrop you have thousands and thousands of people waiting to be fed. Jesus holds this little meal and he's giving thanks. I, I kind of wonder, this is a little bit of speculation, but I, I'm wondering if the disciples are listening to Jesus pray, seeing the crowds in the background, maybe they're opening their eyes in the prayer, you know, and they see these thousands of people in the background and they're wondering, you're thanking God for this, Jesus? I can understand thanking God for a big meal, but this is just five barley loaves and two fish. You're thanking God for this? Don't you see the thousands of people in the background? This is going to be embarrassing. But after his prayer, Jesus gave each disciple a basket. And in this basket would be bread and fish. And he gives instructions to the disciples. I want you to distribute this bread and fish to the crowds. Hold up. Where did this bread and fish come from? Now, some people will claim today, well, Jesus is just inspiring generosity. This is not really a miracle. He's just calling people to be generous. But the text doesn't allow that because the text says that Jesus distributed the five loaves and two fish. He's doing a real miracle here. And so the disciples are, are told to, to, to send this out and make sure that everyone has food to eat. Thousands of people. And yet verse 11 says that each person ate as much as they wanted. Thousands of people, verse 12, and yet they each had eaten their fill. Talk about a teachable moment. And then to drive the point home, when supper is over, Jesus tells the disciples, pick up your basket again, go back out, and I want you to pick up the leftovers. The disciples who moments before had told Jesus, it's impossible, there's not enough food, would now have sore arms and sore backs from carrying baskets filled with leftovers of what they thought was not enough. It's a powerful lesson for these disciples. And Jesus is using it to expand their small, myopic view of Jesus to grow it 
to see more of who he is. And he's teaching them an important lesson. And he's teaching us an important lesson. Church, for those who trust him, God will provide all that we need. We just sang about that in Great is Thy Faithfulness. Morning by morning, your mercies are new. All I have needed, thy hand has provided. What we sang about Jesus is doing, and he promises that those who trust in him, he will provide all that we need. Not all that we selfishly want, but all that we need. And he will do so generously. You see the heart of God as a generous God in this text. Remember, they ate their fill. They all had as much as they wanted. It's amazing. And, and, and before long, it doesn't take long for the crowd to catch on to the fact that there was a miracle that just happened. And, 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 and so the, the crowd, in a matter of moments, is worked up into a frenzy. They know this is not just Jesus encouraging generosity. They know it's a miracle. And so verse 15 says, Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. But Jesus does this all throughout John, right? Something big happens. And it's his chance to kind of take the spotlight. And then he just kind of slips away. It's not time yet. It's not time yet. But when you read verse 15 and you see the desire of the crowd and you see Jesus' actions, it raises a question. It, it almost seems like verse 15 is off a little bit. I mean, what do they want to do? They want to crown him as king. Isn't that the point of John? To show us that Jesus is the king, that he's the Messiah, the anointed one? Isn't Jesus king, church? Yes. These miracles are signs that are designed to show us that he is the Messiah, that he is the anointed king. So isn't the crowd's desire to make him king good? Why would Jesus slip away? Why would he, why would he withdraw by himself right when the coronation service is about to begin? Well, there's a detail in verse 2 we need to keep in mind. Why was the crowd following Jesus? A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And, and, and then from that detail, that small detail, we see something, something of the motive of their heart. Now, 15 years ago, come this July, I actually got down on my knee by Lake Michigan and I asked Katie to marry me. Um, but I want, you to, I want you to go back in time with me. I want you to imagine 15 years ago if, if I said something different than what I did say. I want you to imagine that I got down on my knee and I said to her, Katie, listen, I've looked into things and marrying you actually gives me some nice tax benefits. So let's do this. Will you marry me? How do you think that would have gone for me? Not only would I not be married today, but the point is, that's not what marriage is about. Marriage is not about, about making a covenant with a person because you can use them for your own benefits. If that's what your marriage is, you have an unhealthy, unbiblical, disastrous marriage. Marriage is about serving the other person. It's about loving them, giving of yourself for their good. In the same way, the crowd didn't want Jesus for Jesus. They didn't want Jesus to rule over them. They just wanted his bread. 
Now we're going to dip our toe. We're going to skip ahead a little bit, but look, look down at verse 26 with me. Jesus says to the crowd in verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. Sounds good, right? Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So they're, they're missing what the signs were meant to teach them. Yeah, they, they initially were following because of the signs, but ultimately they just wanted what he could give them. They thought, man, Jesus just took five loaves and two fish and fed thousands of people. If that's what he can do with bread, imagine what he can do for us. Imagine what he can do to deliver us from under Rome's thumb. Let's make him king. Look at his power. We can use this. That's why verse 15 says they wanted to take him by force to make him king. Friends, this is a good warning for us. If we try to use Jesus and his power and our religion for selfish ends, we're not trusting Jesus as our king. If we try to use Jesus and exploit his power for our selfish reasons, we're actually putting ourselves in charge on the throne. We're like, we're like, these, like this crowd. We're trying to take Jesus by force and use religion to, to, to fit him, to force him into a mold of our expectations of what a king should do. But listen, church, Jesus is not an errand boy taking orders from us. He is the king of kings. He is God almighty. He is our creator who is meant to be trusted and obeyed. The miracle was designed to reveal the glory of Jesus, not so that we could use Jesus for our selfish ends. This miracle is meant to show us the glory of Jesus, the glory of God the Father, that we might trust him. Crowds were blind. They saw the miracle, but they were blind to the purpose of the miracle. All they could see was how useful Jesus could be in fulfilling their selfish desires. Now, it, it makes sense that they wanted out from underneath of Rome's thumb. It would have been difficult. It would have been miserable. It would have been hard. And so their desire to get out from underneath of Rome is not a bad thing. That desire is not bad. Listen, having desire isn't wrong. Making desire our ruler is. Desires are not bad, but desires make an awful master, an awful king. But church, that's exactly what our culture tells us to do. Don't question your desires. If you feel something in your heart, don't question that. Just submit to what you feel. Submit to your desires in order to be authentic. It's kind of an echo of the, the soft drink Sprite's motto back in the day. You know, obey your thirst. Obey your desires. Don't, don't, don't question your desires. Obey your thirst. But friends, we need to pause and, and, and listen to the culture's motto that it's calling us to, to, to submit to our desires. Have our desires, church, has our desires not let us down? They make promises. Our desires promise us one thing, but don't they let us down? 
They do. They don't deliver. And the reason is, is because sin makes promises and does not deliver. Sin lies to us. And because our desires have been tainted by or stained by sin, our desires don't deliver. Our desires, our hearts left to themselves are not a reliable guide for where to find life. We must look outside of ourselves. We must look to God. And that's part of what John 6 is teaching us. Everyone who ate the bread that Jesus gave as a gift that day, in a matter of hours, they're going to be hungry again. And everyone who ate this miraculous bread that Jesus gave them that day, they would soon die. Eventually, we all die. And that's Jesus' point. He came to offer more than a loaf of bread. He came to give you and I more than a meal. He came to give us life. Look down at verse 35, chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He came to give more than a loaf of bread. He came to give himself, who is the bread of life. And he goes on to say, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Do you see that in verse 35? Friends, if you're wondering how to get out of discontentment, how to know true satisfaction, the answer is right there. God's not hiding it from us. It's right there in the open. This is God's answer to us, to our discontentment. It's not a five-step program. It's a person. It's Jesus, who is the bread of life. Now, we're a church. We're, we believe in Jesus. We love Jesus. So why aren't we more content? Right? As C.S. Lewis put it, our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition while infinite joy is offered to us. Church, we are far too easily pleased. Even as Christians, we know this truth and yet we settle for less. We settle for making mud pies in the slum. Because we struggle to trust God. We trust him, but we're like the man who came to Jesus. I believe, help me with my unbelief. That's a good prayer for us. And like these disciples, our view of Jesus is too small. It needs to grow. Trusting Jesus is a process. It's, it's we need to grow in our trust. We need to grow in our understanding of, of who Jesus is. And what we see from this miracle is that for those who lose everything to gain Christ, God promises infinite joy. He promises to provide what we need. But losing everything to gain Christ, if, you're really, if we're really honest with ourselves, that's hard. That's, that's terrifying. So how can we if not for the first time, then for the thousandth time. How can we learn to trust God again and again and again? Look at verse 16. Verse 16. 
When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing, and when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So, again, remember where we're at here. At the end of the day, Jesus had spent the whole day teaching the crowd that he had compassion on. He, 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 they, they, he's fed the multitudes. And then Jesus, in closing, at the close of the day, he sends the disciples ahead. Get in the boat, guys. Go on ahead of me. I'm going to stay behind and pray. So the disciples go ahead in the boat. Jesus stays behind in the mountain to pray. And then John goes on to give us plenty of detail about their trip. We're told it was dark. And this is not just kind of dark. There's no flashlights. And there's a storm brewing. It's raining, likely, so there's no torches either. It's dark, dark. And Jesus is not with them. He's still on the shore praying. And then when, and when, they're, and then when they're in the middle of the, the, the Sea of Galilee, a storm comes up, begins to rage. And, and the, the waves begin to uh, come around them. And, and these are massive waves that are likely splashing into the boat. And the wind is howling around them. And they are miles away from shore. It's then, verse 19, they saw Jesus, note this, walking on the sea. <laughs> and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Pause there for a second. Church, this, this miracle is recorded in two other Gospels. And so if you've heard this story before, be careful. Don't just rush past this as like this is a norm, an everyday occurrence. Yeah, I've heard that before. <laughs> He's not just appearing to walk on water. He's legit walking on the water. You try and do that. The disciples were frightened. They'd seen several miracles before, but this is different. This is different. Even the water molecules obey King Jesus. Now, for Jesus, who created the sea, this is no big deal, right? He, he created the sea. He sustains all things by the power of his word. And so, of course, the water obeys him. All right, water molecules, hold me up. Yes, sir. He walks on the water. For him, no big deal. But for the disciples, oh, this is jaw-dropping. Who is this guy? They're frightened. We would have been too. Now, friends, in, in, in John 6, 1 through 21, we've seen two miracles. 1 through 16, the feeding of the, of the multitude. 16 through 21, we see him walking on water. But after Jesus gets in the boat, what we're going to see in a couple of weeks is that the rest of John 6, verses 22 through 71, verses 22 through 71 are used to explain the first miracle. The rest of the chapter goes back and it's Jesus' commentary on the feeding of the 5,000. There's no commentary, no further comment on Jesus walking on the water. Why? 
Because Jesus is using the second miracle to underline, to explain, and to emphasize the first miracle. Think about it. Why does Jesus send the disciples ahead of him after the feeding? Yeah, we, know, we know that he went to pray, yes, but they could have waited on shore while he prayed, or he, he, they could have prayed with him. Why does he send them ahead? I think he sends them ahead because he knows that in a little bit he's going to call the storm on the sea. He knows in a little bit he's going to walk in the water. He knows exactly what these disciples need. Yes, they saw the amazing miracle of Jesus multiplying bread and fish, but they still need a bigger view of Jesus. And like the rest of us, the disciples are learning to trust God. It's a process. We don't just wake up one morning and then have it all figured out. Do you? I don't either. So we're learning to trust God. We're, we're, we're growing in our understanding of who God is, just like the disciples are. What, what they need and what we need is to grow in our understanding of who Jesus is. In the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus makes this point. If you trust me, God will provide for you. If you trust me, I will generously provide all that you need. What we need, not what we sinfully, selfishly desire. Verse 15 makes that clear. And I think it's a good reminder that sometimes we think, well, I know, I know what I need. No, you don't. I don't. I don't know what I need, and you don't know what you need. We don't know what's good for us, but God knows what we need, and God knows what's good for us. So ask God for anything. Ask God for everything, but trust that his response will always be for what's your good. If it's no, it's for your good. If it's not yet, it's for your good. If it's yes, it's for your good. Ask him and believe that he will give good gifts to those who ask. God promises to provide those who trust him what they need. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So the disciples saw that, they get it, so far so good. But then Jesus sends them off in a, a boat and they're caught in a storm. They can't see anything because it's pitch black dark. They can't swim because they're miles away from the shore. The waves are huge. The wind is throwing this boat around like a rag doll. And now just pause the story right there when they're in the storm. Where's Jesus? He's back on the shore. Well, Jesus just promised that he would provide for them. And now they're in a storm. Their boat's about to capsize. Where is he now? Can you imagine think, thinking that? Has, has Jesus forgotten us? Will he let us down now in our time of need? Doesn't he see that we're in a storm? Do we need to take matters into our own hands? Do we need to call on a different God? Is Jesus who he says he is? And then, right then, they see Jesus walking in the water. <laughs> the second miracle underlines the first miracle. In essence, Jesus is saying, listen, I promised you in that last miracle that I will provide for you what you need if you trust me. 
and listen, nothing's going to stop me from keeping my promise to you. Even if I have to walk on water to get to you, even if I have to walk on water in the midst of a storm, I will keep my promise to you. You can trust me. Once the disciples see this about Jesus, oh, he walks on water. He keeps his promises. It's then that Jesus provides the application for them in verse 20. He said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. I love how in verse 21 it says that, that they were glad to take him into the boat. You bet they were glad. And, and, and whereas the other gospel accounts tell more of a narrative with more dialogue about Jesus calming the storm, John doesn't tell us any of those details. It just says immediately the boat was there. Because I think the point that John's trying to make is, listen, if Jesus is in your boat, you're, you're good. He'll keep his promise. He'll provide you what you need when you need it. Church, if you're in Christ, God is your father. You are his child. And he has promised as your father to take care of you. Do not be afraid. No matter what you face today, no matter what you face tomorrow, if Jesus is with you, if you are in Christ, if he is your shepherd and you are trusting him, do not be afraid. He will provide for you. He will walk on water to get to you if he needs to. What's happening in your boat this morning? We all got a boat. What's happening in your boat? What feels too big for God to handle? What is, what is leaving you anxious or angry or fearful? You might be tired of waiting for a Christian husband or wife. You want to get married? You're still waiting. You might be married, but the boat's taken on the water and about to sink. You might be sick, waiting on God to heal you. How long? You may be fearful about the future of our nation. You may be anxious about your kids. You might be angry because somebody wronged you. You might be afraid because of somebody and their opinion of you. Every person, every family, every church, we've all got our boat. We've all got our concerns. We've all got our issues. And it's in that crisis when Jesus feels miles away from us and life is pitch dark and we can't see what's going on, it's then that we're tempted to doubt that God will keep his promise. It's then we're tempted to take matters into our own hands. Friends, we may not see all that God's up to, but John 6 reminds us that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Christ, and he's good. He's trustworthy. He may not do things the way that we think he should, but they're always better. We may not understand his timing. We may not understand his ways, but God is not distant. He is not inattentive to your plight. And nothing will hinder him from coming to you. 
provide what you need when you need it. He will walk on water to get to you if he needs to. Is that good? That's right, it's good. And as good as that is, there's even a greater reason for us to trust in Jesus this morning. In verse 4, John includes a, a, a detail that might kind of first appear like a throwaway detail. It says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. All right? Well, what's the Passover? Well, the Passover was an annual Jewish feast that the Jews would, 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 would gather together to remember the Exodus. They, it's meant to remember the Exodus. God delivering his people from slavery in Egypt. And in the Passover, they would rehearse, they would rehearse how God parted the Red Sea in their time of need. Pinned up against the Red Sea, the Egyptian army coming, and boom, right at the right moment. Don't worry, I got this. Parts the Red Sea. Then they're in the wilderness. No bread to eat, no water to drink. Don't worry, I got this. He provides manna. They're remembering this. They're remembering God's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And they rehearse these things over and over every Passover. And it was during the Passover that it was a heightened time of expectation that God would deliver his people again as he has promised in the prophets. He talks about this in, in the prophet Isaiah chapter 11. So there, when, it, when the Passover season's around, there's this heightened expectation of a deliverer. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and they're remembering the, the parting of the Red Sea and, 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 the, and the provision of manna, and then Jesus comes on the scene and he provides bread and then he walks in the water, it's no surprise that people think, whoo, this is it. This is the prophet. This is the Messiah. This is the one that we've been waiting for. Let's make him king. And they were right. He is the king. And he had come to deliver them. Their problem was not that they got that wrong. They, they, their problem was that they, they misunderstood their, their, their problem. They assumed their greatest problem was a political one. And so they needed a political messiah who would come in with military might and get rid of Rome. They thought that was their biggest problem. And so they wanted to make Jesus king so he would wipe out Rome. But however painful living under Rome's thumb was, their greatest problem wasn't political. It was spiritual. They needed deliverance, not just from Rome. They needed deliverance from sin. They needed deliverance from the righteous wrath of God that will judge all sin. And friends, that's why Jesus came. That's why he came 2,000 years ago, God in the flesh, not to wield the spear and bring judgment the first time, but to receive the spear thrust and to bear God's judgment for sinners like us. That's why we trust him. That's why we know we can trust him. Jesus didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up first. The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. And if Jesus died and stayed in the grave, listen, we would have no hope as Christians. But to keep his promise to us, Jesus not only walked on water, he not only died on the cross for our sin in our place, he also got up from the dead. That's a greater reason to trust him than him walk on the water. There's nothing that will keep him from you. 
There's nothing that will get in his way and say, oh, I can't get past that. He will, he will climb over death. He will put death to death. He will get rid of death to get to you. He rose from the dead, and now he calls on you, and he calls on me to turn from our sin and to trust in him. Friends, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, that's what he's calling you to do. Turn from your self-reliance. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus. Do that today, and then tomorrow do it again. Church, because that's what we do. We wake up, we trust in Jesus again, again, again. C.S. Lewis said, we are far too easily pleased. We settle for the fleeting pleasures that shopping and eating and vegging out in front of Netflix or indulging in lust or refreshing our social media page or work can bring. We, we, we like those fleeting, fleeting pleasures and we settle for them. And we like them because they don't make us wait. I click the button, I take the bite, I make the purchase, and there's an instant dopamine high. It's easy. We know what to do to feel good, and it gives us a sense of being in control of our happiness. And in a world that's out of control and frustrating, we like that. But they are, as Jesus will say, the food that perishes. Friends, God's gifts, as good as they are, can become the false gods that we trust and treasure and worship. We will either try to force Jesus into being a king who supports our selfish desires, or we will give in to them and push God, our church family, and his word to the margins of our life or even out of our picture. Jesus knows that these gifts, however good they are, will never satisfy. They are the food that will perish. And left unchecked, they can lead us to drift away from God into destruction. But Jesus offers something better than bread, something better than fleeting pleasure. He offers us infinite joy. Not the food that perishes, but eternal life, life in him. The question is, will you trust him? Will you turn from the gods that offer cheap, immediate pleasure, and will you come to God for the infinite joy that he offers. I pray we do. Let's pray together.